Good afternoon. Welcome to Madison Bookbeat, highlighting Madison and Wisconsin authors. I'm David Ahrens, your host. Our guest today, Jeffrey Bolt, is a Madison author with deep experience in the subject of his new book, Blue Lake. Jeffrey Bolt is an author and attorney in Madison. He's a graduate of UW Law School and also attended the creative writing program of Augsburg University. For 24 years, Jeffrey served as an administrative law judge for most of the state agencies of Wisconsin, including the Department of Natural Resources. He retired six years ago and began his current career as an author of the novel Blue Lake, as well as short stories and poems. Blue Lake is part romantic tale, a mystery, and a thriller. However, the narratives underlying each of these genres are true-to-life environmental issues that are as current as the news, if not of today's news, then certainly of the last week. We'll get into details of some of these cases, or cases like them, and their impact on the state without giving away the end. But first, it's my great pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Bolt to Wart and to Madison Bookbeat. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm delighted to be here in a program that I've listened to many times myself. Oh, oh great, great. So you know sort of uh, what's going to unfold, uh, perhaps. So before we get into the book, as as background information, because it's it's sort of a key part of, of any discussion we might have, perhaps it would be helpful if you briefly discussed your role as an administrative law judge for state agencies. The main character, Jason, is a administrative law judge, or in the jargon, an ALJ. What is an ALJ? Okay, well, uh, an ALJ is uh, part of the administrative branch of the uh, state government, so uh, it's not a judicial function. But uh, in the case of, let's say, DNR, and and it is fairly agency-specific, in the case of the DNR, because the DNR has been delegated authority by the U.S. government, uh, the EPA, uh, for things like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, uh, which uh, were a lot of my cases over many years, uh, the final decision of the ALJ becomes the final legal decision of the agency, uh, and that's under federal law. And then there is a review process where the department secretary can review. Those have been very rare uh, in the instance of uh, DNR decisions, certainly. But in general, they make uh, an ALJ would make the final legal decision of a particular agency. And some some agencies have proposed decisions where. Uh, the ALJ makes a finding of fact about um, how these facts intersect with the law and the authority of the agency, and then the secretary, you know, the, the secretary of the department of the state uh, gets the final call on the pro- proposed decision. But uh, not many uh, in the environmental context are proposed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only one I can think mm-hmm. of is uh, landfill siting. Um, but uh, in general, that's what an ALJ does. So getting down to the book and how this intersects with uh, real-life facts on the ground, the book explores in detail two cases. 
One is a real estate development on a lakefront, and then more central is the permit to expand a concentrated animal feeding operation, a CAFO. In the book, uh, neighbors of the existing operation sue, I guess, the DNR, or I don't know how it unfolds, they sue the existing operation because of the effects of the existing CAFO on their drinking water and and quality of life. So, so that's a case where an administrative law judge, someone requests a permit for a 10,000 head feeding operation, and I'm the neighbor. And if the DNR is going to give this permit to this operation, I can contest it, and then it goes to ALJ. Is that sort of the run of things? That's correct. Uh, mm-hmm. If you meet the standards, there's standards for getting uh, what's called a contested case hearing. Yeah. Uh, and it usually is a permit. It's it's not so much that people sue the department, although that's that's happening now in that specific context uh, uh, of, a, of a CAFO. But typically, it's a permitting decision uh, where the ALJ will apply standards that are set forth in both state and federal uh, law and administrative code, you mm-hmm. know, to uh, to flesh out what the law says. Now, now the book, um, you give some real, it's pretty withering criticism of the DNR, really, uh, that is the, the character, who I assume is a close relative of yours, <laughs> um, uh, both in its permitting and in the regulation and monitoring of these CAFO operations. Um, the character uh, really says that there's real negligence on the part of the DNR. Uh, is this an actual case that you were involved in with when when you were at the DNR? Uh, no, it's a fictional case. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the context in the book is... Um, what the character is grappling with is the change of administrations and how uh, different the new governor, uh, uh, that one of the characters, not the main character, but calls the governor from uh, hell, uh, Mm -hmm. is is, uh, less committed to uh, the consensus that Wisconsin always had had previously to environmental protection. Um, and I, I think that's the context. It's not so much criticism of the DNR, but of the leader, leadership of the DNR, where uh, suddenly things that have been settled are no longer feeling as settled for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there is the, there's the specter of uh, pressure, too, that um, I think the character experiences as something new in his professional life. Right. Uh, with yep. the threat of discipline, which is a story, by the way, when I go around the state, uh, I've had events around the state uh, promoting my book, and I have heard from a number of uh, environmental regulators who have said that uh, they face those kind of disciplinary decisions or uh, actions uh, as they said about what they thought as following the law. So certainly part of so, so these, life as well as the fictional situation. So these other former, I assume they're 
mostly former employees, feel that their work was compromised by political pressure? I would. I, I think that was kind of a feeling. I, I you know, I can't speak for anyone else, of sure. course. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I think the I think the job of a creative writer fiction is to kind of flesh out the emotional feeling of uh, of a time period and, and of a history. And I, it certainly was true uh, in my experience working with the Department of Natural Resources, and I, I have great respect for the employees of the department, and uh, many of those retired folks have gone on to work with the, the Green Fire group that's done, mm-hmm. accomplished a lot uh, in the state. But uh, I think a lot of people during particularly the Walker administration were feeling demoralized, and I, I think people were feeling that across state government, and, and I think really that's one of the reasons that my book has resonated. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I just checked today the Madison Public Library has purchased 30 copies, and there's still a waiting list of 160 holds. Whoa. And, uh, <laughs> the Brown County, I was in Green Bay last week, uh, last Saturday, and uh, they had made it the May Book Club uh, at Lion's Mouth Bookstore, which a wonderful bookstore, independently owned uh, in downtown Green Bay, but uh, there was buy-in there from the Brown County Library as well. So uh, the, the book is tapped yeah, into, I think, partly that feeling of the Wisconsin that we had all known was changed dramatically mm-hmm. during the Walker administration, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about the public sector unions which had started here, <laughs> asked me local one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, it's from Madison, uh, and and so many things changed, and um, there was a sense that the characters explore fictionally that was we have entered into new territory here. Right, and how uh, t- how know. how each person is then faced with a sort of a moral crossroads of how do you respond? Exactly. Uh, the, the character says at one point that he feels like the, uh, the, the protagonist, Jason, feels like the graduate student uh, who stood up in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square, uh, you know, and I, I, su- I suppose uh, you know, coming at him was the Walker uh, administration and probably uh, the large dairy lobby. Uh, but uh, in terms of what what he was fear, feeling, but um, yeah. Well, let me just go go into the book because the book was interesting. You know, one of the things that caught me right off at the beginning was I was interested in the plot device uh, you use of sort of placing the last or near final act in the beginning of the book. You know, in the first page, the main character is shot. Then we work our way back up, up to that point. So why did you choose to, as I would say, shoot him first and explain later? <laughs> uh, that's a good way to put it, David. Uh, I think that that kind of set the tone of uh, the sort of mystery and legal thriller vibe that I was looking for. Uh, that uh, What I was really going for was a sort of slow-building mystery. Uh, where you got to know the characters 
well, more akin to a literary novel than, you know, than the typical legal thriller, mm-hmm. especially where in legal thrillers, uh, usually it's a male protagonist, not always, of course, but it's usually a male protagonist and he's usually sort of a superhero and a lawyer who, you know, figures everything <laughs> out and tracks everybody down. And uh, I wanted a more sort of passive and intellectual character, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and he's lonely and he's, you know, his job is, uh, uh, he feels the weight. And, and and this this does tie in with the political uh, aspects. That he feels the weight of making decisions about the rule of law, mm-hmm. and, and I'm sure you know uh, the recent experience of uh, you know the Brad Raffensburgers of the world, you know, who stood up to extreme pressure mm-hmm. to keep the rule of law. We're speaking of the Secretary of State well, of Georgia. Correct, yeah. and, and a number of other mm-hmm. officials, you know, and there was a other brave fellow who, who even predicted the violence, you know, that was to come if the, you know, the big lie kept going forward. But uh, so uh, anyway, there there is a pressure of sort of being the the fellow or woman in front of uh, those tanks from Tiananmen Square, uh, metaphorically. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, no, I think. Um, you know, there's four characters. There's four main characters in the book. Uh, Jason, the the administrative law judge, uh, and Tara, who's an unhappily married environmental journalist. She's about to hit forty, so mm-hmm. she's feeling her biological clock ticking. Uh, they're both lonely and in kind of a mid-career crisis, uh, in part because they're both passionate about the environment. Uh, but also other factors in their life. Uh, and then there's Grace, who is a, an attorney in La Crosse. Uh, she's a young widow who was a law school classmate of Jason's. Uh, I suppose from the standpoint of the environmental issues, she's probably one of the heroes of the story. Uh, and she's kind of comes to terms with living her whole life in her hometown uh, of lacrosse it's a beautiful area it happens to be my hometown uh, and she she's sort of wrestling with that as she goes through and then there's uh, the fourth character and you get inside the heads of these four main characters uh, the fourth main character is Earl Franks who is an unethical attorney he's a former attorney general and Supreme Court justice uh, who represents uh, a shady developer from Chicago very interesting yeah. character. I thought that was the portrayal of him was really good as a, as the not just purely an evil doer. I mean, he has other human dimensions that you could see how someone just sort of gets sucked down into this, you know, so you know his moral abyss. You know? Yes, uh, I think he's kind of a charming villain. Uh, he mm-hmm. certainly. He certainly is sexist, uh, you know, uh, mm, the sure. old school. Yeah, he's old school. <laughs> and, uh, and, and has a lot of really negative features. He's a reasonable father, uh, but uh, there is something people have responded to Earl. Uh, I'm actually, I, I've workshopped the successor book, the sequel, and uh, with some authors uh, around the country, and very diverse. Uh, two are in New York, two are in L.A., and two of us are in the Midwest. Uh, and very different backgrounds, races, et cetera. And everyone loved Earl. Uh, which, uh, <laughs> and in the next book, uh, Earl 
uh, tries to redeem himself. Uh, from, <laughs> he's, yeah. he's learned some <clears throat> things from, from his fate at the end of Blue Lake. Uh, yes. Um, I'm glad so, you liked Earl, too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad he's reappearing. He turned, you know, sort of the uh, unexpected guest who, who turns out to be the, uh, you know, the main interest of the whole show. Um, now, the novel is not only situated in, in Wisconsin, it gives a very detailed description of parts of lacrosse and Madison and all the, you know, not all of, but many of the natural areas between those two points. Do you think there's an allure to readers of reading about familiar places? And how do you think people who are not as homegrown as I or you are um, would respond to this? That's a very good question. That's an excellent question. And I, frankly, I don't know. We'll find out. I mean, I've done, (laughs) I've done very well in Wisconsin and, uh, you know, with uh, Blue Lake, it's, it's definitely uh, piqued people's interests uh, around the state uh, and I'm going to be in Milwaukee uh, next weekend and, uh, you know, talking down Milwaukee public radio, et cetera. But I don't know. I think that it will play at least within the upper Midwest region. Um, you know, part of what I had in mind, I, I had two sort of central ideas. One of them was uh, the situation where two, spe- two people's lives were in danger, but they were falling in love and flirting and having a good time and, and too busy to notice that their lives were in danger. But the other thing is I wanted the setting to be the, what um, Phil Lewis is a really distinguished, um, I don't know what his discipline is, but at the University of Wisconsin, uh, he talks about this area called the Driftless Circle Cities, mm-hmm. uh, and he may be a landscape uh, architect or something along those lines, but he, his, his, he had a group of graduate students that would identify the natural features of uh, urban population centers. And so even though technically the Driftless region uh, is basically from probably somewhere in Illinois to Red Wing, Minnesota, you know, where the bluffs are along the river and, mm-hmm. and out uh, where the glaciers didn't go, he sees it as connected between Chicago all the way to Minneapolis because uh, it's like the central... He's a um, driftless imperialist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think more, it's like, he, he saw it as like the Adirondacks, you uh-huh. know, uh, that like, and the te- you know, the goal was preserve what's important uh, in, in uh, you know, in natural features adjacent to urban areas. Hmm. And so, you know, that's why, uh, you know, it's, it starts in the book about... Uh, taking down some of the driftless uh, hills because the sand is just right for right. fracking sand, mm-hmm. right. and, and that's that happened. And it would be striking uh, to go in those areas and see no hills coming down mm-hmm. on the Minnesota side of the river mm-hmm. because they had a moratorium, as I understood it, and seeing hills coming down. And uh, 
you know, natural features being lost. Yeah, it's sort of uh, a West Virginia. And just going to give this uh, story that comes to mind. I remember some years ago I was having a meeting with in someone's kitchen, and this one person who's supposed shows up, and she was so upset and and what she recounted was she is a native of Rice Lake and she had just been up and I don't know which route she took to get back. I don't think it was, you know, interstate all the way, but she was so upset by what had happened to her area, to her home. She hadn't seen it for years since before fracking, and now she was seeing it after fracking. And she was just shocked, bewildered about how could this happen to us? Um, yeah, the hills that have been there for probably thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, that's that's what's uh, so short-sighted about it uh, from my perspective. And of course, I'm, I'm a native of lacrosse, and I grew up hiking those bluffs and, uh, you know, looking for the, uh, the cacti on the dry sand prairie and uh, all the natural features that are there were, you know, so meaningful for me. So it was kind of heartbreaking to watch, and yet I'd have to go uh, in my job and, and evaluate strictly based on the legal standards mm-hmm. whether or not to grant a permit to, you know, conduct that kind of operation and you know and that's the uh, when you are a legal decision maker you have to follow the law and follow the <laughs> <We> uh, <hope. laughs> uh, or at least uh, that's the way it's always been mm-hmm. but i do think the other reason that the book has resonated is because the rule of law is under threat right now it's under threat because it seems that we have one uh, political party, or at least, you know, probably a majority of one of our two major political parties that is not really committed to the rule of law. And uh, as we saw on January 6th, mm-hmm. and, you know, and uh, uh, that's, the, that's the new place that we find ourselves in. It's suggested uh, in my book that, you know, maybe in Wisconsin we got a glimpse of that before the Trump years. Right. In terms of, right. That you know, uh, much of the real policy agenda was set here um, in the years before Trump and, and, and not just the policy agenda, but the sort of the testing of it and seeing whether, you know, a purple state can, uh, you know, support a Walker and later Trump. But let me just uh, take a break here. Um, uh, for those uh, who are listening, uh, this is Madison Bookbeat. Um, I'm David Ahrens. I'm the uh, host today. And our guest is Jeffrey Bolt. Jeffrey is an attorney in Madison, but uh, more to the point of this show, he's the author of Blue Lake, um, a novel of mystery, romance, and intrigue, and quite, but all of it underlines um, a deep love, I'll use the L word, uh, a love and an understanding of 
uh, the Wisconsin, uh, our natural world uh, here in Wisconsin, uh, sort of given some distance of just saying it's the environment, but it's um, something more or less than that. Um, are, you mentioned that. Um, are you writing a sequel to this? or? Yes. Uh, I, I always had in mind a three-book series. Uh, and the first was to deal with water, uh, and the second, uh, which is the, the working title, is Big Lake Troubles, is set on Lake Superior, Hmm. Uh, and it's more directly deals with uh, the climate crisis and climate change uh, through the the lens of a large coal uh, transshipment facility uh, up on Lake Superior. Uh, so coal obviously is still the main uh, driver of of uh, climate change, and uh, so that's it's uh, directly related to uh, the events that unfold there. Uh, and then the, the third book that I had in mind, if I can uh, make it that far, uh, <laughs> is about fire uh, in, huh. in California. Uh, the second book already has uh, Jason spending a fair amount of time in California. Uh, and uh, and uh, the, uh, the fire issue is uh, so pressing. So, in, as the series goes, uh, it's like the old metaphor of the boiling frog uh, for climate change. You know that, that the frog's in the water that's slowly getting to boiling and doesn't realize mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I wanted my books to have this. It's getting a little hotter as we go along. Yes. Mm-hmm. So by the end of Blue Lake, uh, you know it's it ends in that year that we had the terrible floods. Um, that were so uh, devastating that yeah. um, I, for me personally too, I, my late wife's bench uh, was along Pheasant Branch Creek uh, oh. in Middleton and it's washed, it away. washed away in the floods and they still haven't gotten around to putting it back in there. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it, that was all, that was new uh, engineering. And that's the thing that's so striking uh, about the, the threat of floods for Wisconsin in particular. I did a seminar recently about cl- the climate crisis that if you look at the last two decades, the they're by far the wettest that we've ever experienced. And so that was new engineering that we chose. We're aware of the risk of floods when we chose the spot uh, for my wife's bench. And it was actually stimulus money that from the Obama years of 20, 2009, I guess it would be, or mm-hmm. 10, uh, that uh, was spent to do it. So state-of-the-art engineering blown away by the flood. Yeah. I don't uh, know if you but, saw the uh, American experience last night on um, uh, PBS about a flood, a devastating flood in California and the early 20th century, that was faulty engineering by, you know, by the state-of-the-art engineers, uh, where right. a dam gave way and hundreds of people uh, lost their lives. Uh, but getting back to um, uh, your book, um, one of the things that was striking about the book, and I, I'm not a romance 
uh, novel <laughs> reader. Uh, but there's quite a bit of romantic attachment and love and experience in the book. And what was striking in the beginning of it was the relationship between uh, the two main characters who are obviously, you know, very attracted to each other right off the bat and then uh, very emotionally involved. <clears throat> it's kept rather chaste. You know, it's, I sort of expected, maybe not on the first get-together, but soon <laughs> thereafter for them to uh, get into bed. And, but it stays rather chaste. And, and you really describe how, you know, they spend time walking and holding hands or, or hug, you know, hugging each other goodbye and so on. Uh, but it really doesn't become uh, sexual for, you know, really for the second part of the book. Uh, what was your thinking on that? Well, I, I think that uh, they're both struggling with their scruples in their ethics. Uh, she's married, and uh, and uh, you know he he curses himself at one point for finding himself in the hackneyed position of being in love with somebody who's married, mm -hmm. uh, which you know is not not something that he set out to do, of yes. course. You know, it's interesting to hear your reaction uh, in Green Bay last night. I had a, I mean, last week, I had a reader who. Uh, when I was describing how it was different than other legal thrillers, uh, and I was saying that I wanted the characters to be more complex, uh, a reader and a female reader said, oh, but yeah, they are different. Your characters have sex. <laughs> 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 so, uh, you know, it's kind of a... It's kind Can't of please a, anyone, uh, can you? <laughs> needle to thread there, I guess, in terms of whether it's too much, too little. Uh, but I did, in terms of, in terms of the sex that is there, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can write a book about nature. And let's face it, the, you know, the themes are the natural world yes. uh, that doesn't have that spark of attraction and sexuality and, you know, the source of life is, is uh, there. So, uh, and, and I, I, this was my MFA thesis. It's funny too, uh, David, but uh, the, the diverse opinions on on the on the sex part uh, yeah. uh, uh, that you know I had one uh, uh, would say oh you have to write a sex scene from the standpoint of the woman you have to do this you have to do that <laughs> you know it's like everybody everybody had a different opinion and you know the main thing that I tried to do was uh, give the characters uh, not be in a male gaze type situation very uh, good right. male characters uh -huh. and yeah. and to give them autonomy over their yeah over their sexuality which yeah. uh, is now under threat from uh, yes. this uh, supreme court decision and and uh, uh, it's it's very if, if it holds it's it's another alarming instance and i think we all need to wake up to the fact that the rule of law is under threat. This was a 50-year precedent of, of Roe v. Wade, and that relied on Griswold, which was a case about contraceptives. Um, and, you know, where does it end if we can throw out 50 years of precedent? And super precedent, even. Uh, both uh, or two of the Trump appointees had talked about uh, 
Casey, which had reaffirmed uh, Roe as being super precedent, because the court very consciously reaffirmed Roe and Casey in the in the early '90s, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know that that the norms, and, and I think that's what my book speaks to too, the norms of how the law functions, how the courts function. They're, they've been blown out of the water. You know, we have, we have this uh, supposed probe of the non-existent voter fraud by, guess what, a former Supreme Court justice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who's being funded by taxpayers to take on a partisan cause that has no... Basis uh, in fact. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just a you know a, a black it's, hole. To let me just uh, get your view of, of this decision since it's it's you know absolutely hovering over you know our thoughts these days um, and will for the next few weeks I assume until it it, it finally is released. Um, I didn't read the, the the draft decision, but you mentioned the. Uh, uh, Griswold case, which allowed contraceptives that the government couldn't interfere with uh, uh, selling contraceptives. Does it challenge that too? It's it's uh, debatable. You know, uh, he, he, I, I think Alito says specifically um, this is just about abortion. Doesn't don't worry about oh, anything oh. other than abortion. Uh-huh. But you know, gay marriage. Also rests on the same pillars, and you know the the fundamental human right to privacy and autonomy. You know Griswold talked about: is the government going to go under people's beds looking for contraceptives? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's 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 so intrusive, and it's also so radical. Right? President uh, Biden used that term. You know, this this is not a conservative decision. And that's kind of the change that I guess Jason experiences when you're not dealing with conservative, but what you're dealing with is a radical change, a radical rupture to the right. Mm-hmm. And, and um, yeah, we felt it. Uh, I think we felt it a little tremor of that before the rest of the nation did during the Trump years. Right. It was such a <clears throat> such an abrupt and harsh change from really a, a fairly centrist government under Doyle. No one could, well, not no one, but he's hard to think of as a radical well, or Tommy Thompson as a radical. Yeah, Tommy Thompson, <laughs> you know, the, the state government functioned so well. Uh, James Clouser was the DOA secretary and really modernized state government and you know, you think about things like a good example. Well, there's a couple. One would be uh, there was a gap in wetlands regulation after a Supreme Court decision. Uh, Governor McCallum, a Republican, called a special session wow. of the legislature to, to address that. that gap. Can you imagine that happening? Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and Tommy Thompson, both uh-huh. as governor and as transportation secretary, U.S. transportation secretary, had done all the legwork for the high-speed rail. It was all in place, and Governor Doyle had brought in the Spanish company to even make the trains. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, so it's, but that was denied just strictly out of reasons that are just inexplicable other than purely political reasons to position that governor as a potential presidential candidate or something. I don't know what the fantasy was, but I do know that the high-speed train would have been wonderful for my hometown of La Crosse (laughs) to take a train from Chicago to La Crosse or Minneapolis. And, and Tommy Thompson's plan had even included the ability of Wisconsinites to take the train to Lambeau field, (laughs) which would have been pretty wonderful. (laughs) If you've ever had the track, uh, you know, the traffic coming out of a Packer game. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty bad. Um, Now, I want to ask you as a as a mystery writer, which I guess I could call you now. Um, you must be a are you are you an avid mystery reader? I do read. I read uh, a fair number. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not. I wouldn't say that's my main uh, right. interest, and, and and that's why I call my I call my book a a literary legal thriller or some mm-hmm. will call it an eco thriller, uh, you know, and, and a green mystery or something. Uh, but you know, I, I tend to read more literary fiction. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, do, do you have, uh, favorites among, uh, the whole collection of, of mystery writers who, you know, I think people recognize now are great, you know, literary writers as well. They're not just, you know, husband into uh, the little mystery thriller section. Yes, I like uh, John Vanville writes, uh, I, I forget the exact first name of the, of the uh, pseudonym he chooses, but uh, John Vanville is a very talented Irish writer. And hmm. He has a mystery series uh, that was made into a BBC uh, television series as well. Um, I liked Simonone, the uh, Belgian mm-hmm. yeah. French guy yeah. for uh, the psychological <laughs> mystery, yeah. and uh, there's always uh, there's always interesting psychological uh, uh, intrigue going on there with the characters as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know I could go on and on, but yeah. I mean, qu- quite frankly, I am more of a reader of literary. You know, if I look around at books that I, you know bought and read lately. I'm looking at Richard Powers and Ann Patchett, yeah. Lynn mm-hmm. King, yeah. uh, Christina Clancy, a wonderful Wisconsin writer, Louise Erdrich, Tessa Hadley, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Strout, Jonathan Francis. Are you, are, are you looking books at the books on your, on your bedstand now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the books in my uh, study here, yeah. Those uh, are, and I keep the ones that I've just read, so... Those are all. Like, Richard Powers is fabulous uh, as a as an environmental writer. You know, I, I think probably I see myself as a literary writer who writes about the environment, mm-hmm. and and I think the I think the mystery and the the legal thriller energy of you know uh, sort of a propulsive plot that keeps you turning the page and you want to know. The outcome. I think that's uh, that's a good energy for any book to have. Yeah. But, you how, know, about, literary... how about legal thrillers? Do you you have many of well, them? 
of course, uh, I, you know, I've read Grisham uh, and and even studied him uh, at the graduate level uh, in the MFA program I was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a wonderful writer, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 Scott Turow yes. and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Robin. I forget her last name. There's uh, there's a very fine uh, um, writer whose name I can't remember right mm-hmm. now, but. Uh, yes, I, I, I keep, I try to keep abreast of that, but I guess I hunger for the literary, uh, <laughs> uh, character development and, uh, sense of place. And, uh, you know, you can have those dimensions in, in mysteries and in, in legal thrillers as well, of course. And, and who, what was the, um, uh, Wisconsin writer you mentioned? Her first name was Christine. Christina Clancy. She wrote these wonderful books. Uh, the Second Home was her first book, uh, uh, and uh, her second book is Shoulder Season. Uh, very, very talented oh, writer. I think I've, I've heard of that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she was she was kind enough to blurb my book. Another Wisconsin writer that I love who blurred my book is Lindsay Stark, uh, who uh, just just won the Pushcart Prize for Fiction. Uh, um, this year, I believe, uh, but she also writes about climate a lot and uh, really outstanding uh, writer who comes from Milwaukee originally. I see. But so, <clears throat> are they are the books based in Wisconsin, or are they? Um... Um, I, I would uh, uh, well, yes. Uh, Christina Clancy's are yes. Uh, you know, in part, uh, Second Home also has a. Uh, has uh, a dimension on uh, on the east as well, uh, but uh, on Cape Cod, I believe. But uh, if I remember correctly, but uh, certainly that kind of a feel. Uh, but uh, there's also uh, a lot of it unfolds in Milwaukee, which I believe is her hometown. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, just getting back to your career as an ALJ, uh, did you? Have cases related to CAFOs, or this is just something that was so present and as a environmental issue in the state that you I just did. sort of decided to take uh, it in? I did, and uh, Google my name and uh, massive regulatory failure. <laughs> 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 no, and that, that was that was kind of a frustration of uh, on the on the groundwater issue was you know during a course of of a case that I decided that still seems to be working its way through the courts. The Is this Wisconsin the one that Supreme... was sued last, where there was a lawsuit last week about this? Or... Yes, okay. exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, the Wisconsin Supreme Court affirmed my decision in that case, which I was thrilled about. Uh, and there, there was a lot of a lot of sleepless nights involved in that case. But mm. at, at that time, what I saw and what the record reflected was this massive... Uh, groundwater contamination crisis, and you know, and I, I use those strong terms of massive regulatory failure uh, in my decision. Uh, and and so uh, little has so little has happened. Yeah. Uh, since then, you know, and that's uh, that's you know, the, the permit did work its way through, and it did contain the conditions that I thought were necessary. And I'm very grateful uh, and, and happy for the people who live there. Uh, because I, I think there was clearly legal authority, or I wouldn't have 
I wouldn't have uh, issued that permit. But um, but yes, I've I've had cases like that. But um, in in Jason, uh, the ALJ also describes. Does he use massive regulatory failure or, or <laughs> words to that effect that uh, becomes uh, you know uh, broadcast around the the state? <laughs> yeah. I think he takes it a step further and, and talks about Flint. I, I don't honestly yeah. recall exactly what yeah. his language is, but uh, he certainly he said something that um, is not popular with uh, the administration, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right, or Wisconsin Dairy Council or whatever. Um, uh, let me just uh, interrupt here again and just say that uh, this is David Ahrens. I'm a the host for uh, Madison Bookbeat, and my guest today is Jeffrey Bolt, and Jeffrey is uh, the author of Blue Lake, a eco thriller. <laughs> it's a it's a, a novel of uh, mystery, thrilling romance, but all underlying this, which has really been uh, the subject of most of our conversation, is it's about a lawyer who's faced with the nuts and bolts of the environmental crisis uh, that we're faced with in the state, and a crisis that uh, mostly focuses on uh, CAFO. But let's uh, talk a bit about the other case involved here, which is so-called development uh, on a lake. And can you describe a bit about what that that issue is and how that plays out in real life as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is a fictional case, and actually the law has been settled in that area. Fortunately, uh, the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court in that instance uh, said that uh, it was unlawful to do what the shady developer uh, in, uh, in the novel wanted to do, which was basically to sell pure slips as uh, a property, a piece of property uh-huh. which that you could build of on. Of course, yeah, yeah, and which uh, you know, the, there's the uh, the the law in Wisconsin follows the public trust doctrine, and the public trust doctrine has uh, the regulator and the and the decision maker uh, consider uh, various factors, including the cumulative impacts of of a particular kind of development. So. That's that's raised in there of uh, what would be the cumulative impacts if we just had this wholesale selling of pier slips uh, that were you know institutionalized and uh, taking up uh, part of the near shore area, the uh, so-called littoral zone. Mm-hmm. So that was tried in the state. That was yeah that was that was decided and uh, it was decided. Um, I can't remember exactly when, but mm-hmm. um, that, that that part is is fictional. It's a, you know it's it's certainly a plausible. It, it applies in other states, uh, but that one uh, the law is uh, more settled than is suggested in the novel. And that's that's uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's important to remember that when you're writing fiction, you know that you're writing fiction you know so it's not i I didn't want i didn't want there to be uh so much overlap between 
my own experience and, and the status of the law. So right. I gave myself that freedom uh, with that case in particular. I mean, it's like what the um, someone said about John Le Carre novels that um, uh, none of none of what occurs is real, but everything is true. <laughs> yeah, that's what one would hope. <laughs> But especially emotionally true, you know, and especially or, uh, you know, just getting at some, I think what fiction does at its best is it gets at some deeper truth than, um, than, than even, even history. And I was a history major and, and, and love history, but uh, to, to try to get at the, the core of what people experience in a particular period of time. Mm-hmm. I think that's the task of the fiction writer. Right. Ask the right question. Chekhov says, "Ask the right question." You you don't have to provide answers, and uh, but you have to ask the right questions of what were people, what were people feeling, thinking, uh, experiencing at a particular moment in time, and that's my real goal. That's why I say my hope is it's a literary novel uh, of Wisconsin in a particular period of. It's history. Mm-hmm. We're about coming to a close of our hour. We've been listening to Madison Bookbeat. I'm David Ahrens, and our guest has been Jeffrey Bolt, uh, the author of Blue Lake. I want to thank you very much for taking the time and discussing this book. This book is available not immediately, but after a short wait, probably, at the Madison Library. Um, oh, every uh, everywhere books are sold, pretty okay. much. You okay. can order it. It's uh, and I had my I had my book launch at Leopold's. They were wonderful to me. Uh, I think they still have copies available. I know it's uh, it's at uh, a room of one's own. Oh, good. Mystery to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the indie shops and also in Barnes and Noble, uh, at least in the west side. So, and anywhere online as well. Sure. IndieBound is a great one that allows you to support local uh, independent bookstores. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for that plug. And <laughs> There's bookshop.org as well that gives actual money to the independent bookstores. So. Yeah. Well, thanks again for uh, spending this time with us and, and talking about your book. It was a real pleasure. It was a pleasure in my end, too. Thank you very much. Thank David. you. I mm-hmm. really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye.